Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Richards and Dr. Michael Hemphill to do another article club. Uh, typically, we have a little bit uh, of a bigger group, but today we are running the Skeleton Crew. Uh, this time, uh, we're doing an article by uh, Dr. Mary O'Sullivan, who gave the 2019 McCloy Lecture at Shape America in 2019. Um, at Shape America in Tampa. Uh, the title of the paper is Global Challenges and Opportunities for Physical Education Teacher Educators. Um, I, I actually found this article because I was uh, going through the Shape website as I normally just peruse the Shape website. Um, and I realized that it was the um, it was an open access article that they, uh, that they put out through RQAS. And I really like reading the um, the, the kind of the lectures. So the McCloy lecture is a lecture that's given in person and then they publish a paper afterwards. And sometimes when you're listening to the lecture, you kind of get lost in the detail because they're, you know, talking for 45 minutes. And I like, like going back to these articles and uh, they're typically fairly condensed. And um, so I, I liked it. I, I think it brings up a lot of really important points uh, to discuss in our field. And most importantly, I felt like it was a look into PE and into what problems we have critiqued. Uh, she critiqued a, a little bit of Pete before the pandemic. So this was in 2019, she gave the lecture and then now it was published just now in 2021. Uh, so there's obviously a little bit of a lag time there, but it was, it was kind of like going back in time and not having any understanding of what online education has done, what teacher shortages have done, what, um, and she, uh, you know, she poked at a couple of those uh, things in this paper, but they never really were as, as huge of issues as they are obviously right now. Um, and, and I respect Mary O'Sullivan as a scholar so much. Uh, I was in, in 2014, I went to Auckland for the ISA presentation and I was presenting there at um, one of those big, 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 big screens uh, behind me. And when I finished my talk, Mary O'Sullivan stood up to ask a question and I I was really scared. I was like a grad student in my second or third year and she asked this like really nice question that I kind of understood, but not really. Uh, and I just remember being petrified and asking her afterwards. I was like, was that a good answer? Because I, I'm not sure if I actually understood what you asked. Um, but I, I like the paper. I think there's a lot of discussion points we'll bring up. Uh, let me go to Michael. Um, what do you What do you think? What are kind of your main takeaways from here? Um, so it was an interesting read. Uh, to I really latched on to her conversation around um, some of the movement in the United States around policies, and um, she was involved with some pet grants at Ohio State and produce some research on continuing professional development that I think proved to be influential in a sense that it drove home the notion that this, uh, the one workshop model isn't the best way to do professional development. And that really did move the field. It was a big, uh, it was a big feature of my dissertation. It was that paper specifically that she cited, um, you know, really encouraged me to think about how to, look at TPSR in professional development that's really more embedded in practice. Um, and I still try to keep that in mind with the, the work that I'm doing. And so when you can look at it, you know, 15 years later um, and see her reflect on it, you can see how 
impactful that movement was, and there's and she does cite many of the other other scholars who made who contributed to that line of work. And then with the you know policy line, you can see where the PEP grant, the federal PEP grant model was uh, just really helped there. Um, and you know Kevin and I both were involved with one of those at Purdue, and I think that funding is pretty much down to zero now. Um, and, and so that therein lies some of the challenges with Pete that she gets at later on with um, like, do we really fit in the big research university because it's really hard to meet some of those expectations. You know, that's a big question for us to, to wrestle with. Um, but those are some first impressions I started, you know, I've, I've walked away with so far. Kevin. Yeah. You know, um, the, the point you just made there, Michael, kind of uh, got me thinking a little bit that that idea of do we fit in these big research universities, yeah, another way to phrase that question w would be to may, maybe lead people in a certain direction the way that it's phrased, so excuse me, but, but have research universities evolved to a point where they are almost exclusionary of human service professions and um, and and the development of, of of people into careers like social work and in teaching, um, yeah, I, I think it's true. I think that as a as a physical education scholar, if you're doing you know true physical education and pedagogical research, um, then uh, it, it's difficult to meet things like grant requirements that these major universities have. Um, but, but how did we get to this point in, in the American university system where everything is really just about chasing grant numbers? When did, when did publication stop being enough? Um, you know, so it, it makes me come think about that a little bit and, and what we value most from an institutional perspective. And of course, you know, if you really break this down and get behind the numbers, what universities are really looking for is the ICR money that they get off of the grants that we write and bring in. So they're looking for their cut and they don't get that cut when we publish an article. So from a university perspective, especially in these larger universities, and, and I work at one of those universities, grants are, are more valued in a lot of ways because they bring in that money that the publications don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, imagine, being at an R1 the first year that they announced PEP grant money specifically for physical education enhancement. Like, I think all of us would have been on the phone with colleagues going, how do we, how do we go into, this is like our dedicated pot of money and being, you know, Mary O'Sullivan being one of the first to get one of those, like how exciting, you know, and, and finally having an avenue to do that. Now, I think now we are competing with a bunch of other funders. I think a question that she asks is, is the U.S. R1 a good place to do Pete? And I certainly hope so, because I'm, I'm at an R1, and I really hope that this is a good place to do Pete. And she talked about, because her international journey is so interesting, too, because she had her first uh, tenure-track job in Canada, and then she came to... Uh, Ohio State, where she did her degree, and then she went to, um, you know, she's worked with international people. She finished out at, um, or she's at Limerick uh, in Ireland. But I look at this, and she, she brought a couple examples of when Austra the Australian system started charging a premium for tuition or fees to go into these research-intensive universities versus non-research intensive universities and she talked about what type of student would pay that premium and she said law students would pay that premium to graduate from that place but 
people in teaching professions or, you know, let's say a physical education teacher would look at that and go, I don't know if that's worth my return on investment. And I think, you know, that's why you, most people don't go to Yale for a undergraduate teaching degree. It's super expensive or go, but, but I think that that's, that's weird in the U.S. too, because there's so many private universities that offer these small liberal arts colleges that cost forty, fifty thousand dollars to go to, and you know you end up two hundred thousand dollars in debt, and you have a teaching degree where you could have gone into a state school for a, maybe a quarter of that or a fraction of that. So I, and, I don't know. It's that confusing. That was in some ways, you know, my situation. I went to a, a small private college and, uh, you know, I, I could have gone to a state school for for less. And, um, you know, I know that, that that does hurt some of those smaller private institutions because, you know, there, you talk about return on investment and beginning teacher salaries are, are not necessarily enough to justify going $200,000 into debt. I mean, that's a, that's a real thing that you have to think about. But <clears throat> to get back to the question that, that you know, uh, Mary O'Sullivan posed that you that you uh, kind of brought to us there is our you know our our ones in the U.S. the right place to do Pete. I'm going to skirt that question because I don't know that that answering that question directly is as relevant as this other thing that I have to say. I think that that R1 universities in the U.S. have to have a role. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily have to be the places that train pre-service teachers, but they have to be involved in the chain because that's where most of the doctoral education occurs across the country. Those are the universities that are equipped with faculty who have the training and expertise in research, who can um, you know, work with uh, future faculty members and, and faculty development and recruitment are incredible you know, cogs in this larger chain of PEAT. Now, what I'll say uh, is that historically, at least, if you look around at different um, universities uh, R1 universities in particular, who had both doctoral programs and undergraduate programs at one point, um, when they when they have cut their undergraduate programs, by and large, the doctoral programs haven't survived. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's good reason for that, not the least of which is that as we're training future faculty members, um, they need experiences working in and around PEEP. And so it would be difficult, you know, it, my initial reaction is that it would be difficult to do doctoral education in PEEP without a PEEP program that essentially operates as a lab setting for graduate student development. Um, so I, I guess that's my long and short way of saying that, that, yes, I think we do need to find a way to, to keep doctoral programs or to keep undergraduate programs in R1 setting. But how do you then do that she she brings up this the role of Pete and the neoliberal university where so for me I have to have six students to make a class go and count for my like however many classes of a course load I have and so whether that's a PhD class or a graduate class it's the same number or a master's class the same number and then I have to have I think it's like twelve or ten to make it go for for undergraduate so then can't like when you're running a program a phd program and you're running physical education pedagogy phd courses right how many phd students do you have to have at the same time like in order for the instructor to get credit for it you'd have to have six to ten phd students going through the program because they're on different levels year one two three four kind of 
Like, I think that that creates a dilemma. Then you have to have this big, robust program, and we don't have the capacity, really, to, to run that, right? So you're talking about doctoral enrollment. Yeah, that, right? yeah, absolutely. So that, yeah, so that, but that's assuming that as PEAT faculty members teaching doctoral level courses, we don't have things to offer non-PEAT doctoral students. Um, every every class that I've taught at the doctoral level since I've been at Illinois has had a mix of, of our doctoral students, doctoral students from kinesiology more broadly, like a lot of them have taken my qual methods class, and students from other disciplines outside of kinesiology, like special education. I mean, we we only have at any given time probably you know, three to five of our doctoral students that are enrolled in any one of our given classes, but we get up above those numbers with other students from outside of PEAT. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's a, like at a, at a, like a practical um, level, you know, we all have to decide where's the best place for us to do the work that we want to do in, I'm at an R2, what you consider an R2, and it's a really good place for me because I can go and do what I care about doing. I'm not doing a whole lot of chasing, um, chasing outcomes that I'm not passionate about. Um, so I think that's what people have to ask themselves. But like at a, from a university perspective, if you, you know, R1s are a mostly public institution and uh, there are challenges, but like it's hard to imagine a public mission for a university absent education. Um, I mean, that's, that's sustainable, that uh, population would support, um, that's justifiable and all that. So there's this, um, you know, there's a lot of change happening right now in society and who knows where all this stuff lands. You know, enrollments are going crazy, budgets are all over the place. Um, but I don't think institutions, even those with those major endowments like R1, want to be in a position where we're saying we don't support education i mean there's a school in every community that should be served by these universities or it's hard for me to understand um what their mission is other than like survival um so you know i think eventually that type of reckoning uh has to happen and you know we do need uh, education in universities including um physical education because the population needs it and so then I guess the question is, how do we engage um, policymakers in that conversation and university administrators in that conversation in a way that can be productive? Um, that probably is not going to be those educators who curate that conversation. I mean, I, you know, that's probably, um, you know, education leaders more generally, but um, I think we need to have a sense of where that conversation is taking place at and, um, and, and where it's going. So, yeah, I think, you know, me as Michael, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to UNCG because that's where I fit in. I don't have to fight these battles that I don't want to fight. But as a whole field, um, I think we got to be careful about just saying, let's just go to R2 because that's where we can make it work. Yeah. But but I think also at R2s or R3s or wherever else, you you end up having a heavier course load. So, you know, a lot of places you're teaching four classes and asking for the research as well, which is very, very hard to do. It's very hard to read up on on everything that's happening in the field and 
you know, publish this cutting edge research. I think in in good balanced universities it, that aren't, let's say, R ones that you know they're not asking you to get a lot of grants, but they give you a three three course load, right? Instead of a four four, which is exponentially different, or letting you do double sections that count for two classes, so you're only teaching X amount. Um, and I think that there are places that support scholars in that way. And um, one of the, so our, our provost is going up for, we have an interim provost and he's going up for a five-year term and they he had this um, webinar where he was able to answer a bunch of questions and he, he quoted an old, uh, old provost from like 10 years ago that said that, um, find me a university that has a philosophy department that makes a lot of money. But most universities have some sort of philosophy department. They have it because it's a core part of being a university. So we talk about teaching universities or public institutions like you talked about, Michael, like we have an education program. So if you're producing educators and then all of a sudden you like you have a school of education and you produce math teachers, science teachers, um, English teachers, elementary generalist teachers, and then can you justify saying, but we won't produce physical education teachers? I think that's a hard justification. I think it's way easier to say, I'm in a kinesiology program and we don't need to produce physical education teachers. And if you haven't made that connection to the school at school of ed, and Mary talked about this in, in her, uh, in her paper, as she talked about, the, I think it was a University of North Texas Dean or something like that that talked about this explosive growth in kinesiology. And David Kirk in his ARA lecture, she talked about, suggested, and this is in the UK context, that um, you know physical education programs move to colleges of exercise science. And I don't know if that's the answer. Like I think that, and again, I have no idea about the UK context. And that was from that UK context. I don't think that I think I think it's very hard to justify dropping a physical education program if you have a teacher education program in all these other subjects and you're in that school of ed even though your numbers dip a little bit. I, I think for sure that if um, if you're if you're in a, if you're in a college of education or an ed school and your numbers are dipping as a peak program, numbers across that ed school are probably dipping because that's been the trend over at least the last 10 years. Yep. So I do think that there's a bit of a bit of understanding and a bit of you know camaraderie in the, in the, in the idea that we're in this together. Um, and, and to be honest, like I've always felt as if the way that I identify with physical education, which is really as a pedagogical researcher, I don't do physical activity research really at all. Um, and so as somebody who does pedagogical research, I've always felt like I fit better in a college of education because I understand the topics they research, the theories they use, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't really understand what an exercise physiologist is doing. With that said, though, there are certain protections, I think, if you can, if you can get people on board in the Department of Kinesiology with physical education and its role in kinesiology. And I do think that, that framed properly, it has a role in kinesiology. Then I think that kinesiology departments, at least right now, have more money and resources than do, than do colleges of education. So being affiliated with kinesiology 
the right kinesiology program could provide a different type of insulation than what you see in the college event. And in university climates where everything is driven by, you know, capitalist principles of neoliberalism, then money matters. And so being affiliated in a unit where there's more money matters. So I guess I just started that conversation by saying that I prefer to be in an ed school and ended by saying that I guess maybe there's benefits to being in kinesiology. So I guess I'm talking in circles. But, unless unless but... you're in an ed school that brings in a ton of grants, that has a really research active group that has some you know, National Science Foundation or NIH grants that are coming in STEM or special education. Like I know at Mason, like I'm impressed with our special education and science education yeah. program like they bring in a ton of money and so when you compare them to other programs they stand out yeah and, and that's a really good point um that's a really good point uh, you know I, I will say that you know where we are here in illinois being in a department of kinesiology and a college of applied health sciences there are aspects of that that, that i don't love but then there are other aspects of it that, that i do think are kind of nice um, i will say that one challenge um, you know, as uh, you know, I think you, you mentioned that Mary talked about in this paper is that because we're not in the College of Ed, we still have to have a relationship with the College of Ed and our students still have to take ed courses. Mm -hmm. So they take a series of ed courses in addition to the series of kinesiology courses, which really shrinks the available credit limit that we have to play with. And we have to work with them and go to meetings with them and all of these additional things that um, you know, wouldn't be as challenging if we were in the same organizational unit. Yeah, and I think the final final point I'll make at least, or rant on the R1 grant thing, I feel like even if you're at an R1 that doesn't require you to get these like massive, massive grants before you go up for tenure or full professor, there are people in our field who write external letters and they don't recommend you going up for a full professor unless you've gotten a major grant. And I feel like that sucks. Like, you know, looking at that going, okay, what do I have to do in the next four to six years before, like for me, before I go up for full professor? I have to change my research questions I have to change what I'm doing to figure out how to get NSF, NIH to fund me for a million dollars. Whereas, it, and, I, and I went down this path and I went for a big NSF grant. And by the time we submitted it, I was like, please do not fund this. Because it got so out of hand. I brought so many external players so I could actually fit an NSF call that I was doing an NSF call on like computational thinking and STEM integrated into physical education. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing? Like, this is not something that I'm passionate about, but it pushes me to go in because I know that people who are in the field will evaluate my ten my full professor case down the line and think, did he nail an R like a big NSF grant? And Michael, like, you know, like being in a, in a different situation, you get to do like you do such meaningful work in that community that you are in. And you have like for a long time worked on the ground. And I, you know, you can do a lot of your stuff by giving your time. 
and not giving necessarily like you don't need a million dollars to go into the school that you're going into to collect data and do meaningful work. So I don't know. Do you have a comment on that? I think um, I thought about this reading the paper. I think sometimes the great game um, makes us try to pursue big questions that we're not ready to pursue. And um, that, you know, I looked at the conversation on policy here and it seems like it's all about, you know, national policy, which we have a, we can benefit from because usually if there's policy there, maybe there's funding with it that, that we get like PEP grants and state policy. And same thing, you know, the example of Judy Rink's work in South Carolina was uh, hopefully great for kids, but also great for researchers, you know, generate data, they wanted funding and all these things. And there's an absence of conversation around local policy. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, maybe I'm just missing it. I haven't read that, but I'm, I'm guessing a part of that is because there's really not local um, funding and grants for us to do grassroots level policy work. But some of the problems that I see in physical education in P are actually at the local level. Like we need to start looking at those at the ground level first. And eventually, if we can get our hands around them, maybe we can then look at, at bigger grants um, to, to address that. But, um, you know, issues like I know Kevin's talked about kind of washout effect. You know, those are local levels. People getting hired into a local school where the values aren't, aren't meshing um, and the training getting getting washed out. Um, we've had an issue with, you know, dodgeball. It's super popular in PE based on any kid I talk to. Um, in my community, like that's happening local, right? So um, we can, I, I think we need to really consider that. And then the final point I'll make, as you've seen in this pandemic, is that um, local school boards can be approached and they their policy decisions can be changed um, by the public, uh, you know, in ways, you know, no matter what you think about it, um, they've adopted public health policies and they've refused to adopt public health policies based on public pressure at the local level. It would take a career of someone to produce that type of response um, at a state or national level, but you're seeing it can happen really quickly. So, you know, if we can, you know, maybe start thinking about the grassroots and what, what kind of change can we make? And then can we tell those stories to help, um, help build towards something more transformative? Uh, yeah, maybe that's a better, better path for us. Yeah, I, I think you're right on. I, I didn't even think about that as the policy piece, but we see very, very, very um, public, you know, disputes or conversations at the local school board level. And we have, you know, things have gotten national attention here, just like 20 miles away about a, a local school board meeting. Like, I can zoom in to my sister's kids school district in Georgia and watch their school board meeting and see what's happening. And that's all local people trying to like establish change. And I think if we were to approach that to establish a change in, in our field and physical education, I think that that's a, uh, I mean, that's, that seems logical, right? <laughs> you start with where you live and you start with where you work and start, um, moving it from the ground up. Yeah. And I think that the key to that is that we do it proactively. I think that often what happens with the physical education community, um, both in higher ed and in K-12, 
is that we, we end up becoming very reactionary. We, we wait for things to happen or to be presented before us, and then we rally the troops, and then we talk about all the benefits of everything that we do. Um, you know, it, it'd be great if we had a presence at those school board meetings and pushed more for policy change at the local level by presenting all the things that we're doing good on a daily basis rather than having to come to the defense of, uh, of the discipline because it's on the chopping block. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and yeah. I, I mean, I, I'll give uh, an example because I don't think um, one of the issues might be, we don't uh, kind of write about these examples uh, a lot. Cause I know Tom here, Tom Martinick has, you know, he did grassroots level work most of his career and um, he was able to start a, a public high school at, on campus, it's called a middle college. Um, it's been running for about 10 years now and enrolls about 200 students. And he took his TPSR program and used it as an advocacy tool with the school district to fight for this uh, middle college that's now kind of jointly supported by the local public school district and uh, our university. Um, and so that's sustainable. I mean, he's, he's in his retirement phase now and that, that middle college is thriving and the school district has started like seven other ones. Um, so that's a local policy change that uh, he was able to use from a physical education um, perspective that, you know, maybe those stories just aren't being told enough. Uh, you know, maybe we can come up with a way to share those stories and, and learn from how can we how can we press on with this? And um, the final point I'd love to learn more about is there's all this, there's a lot of conversation around youth voice and PE and education generally. And, you know, thinking about how youth voice can be used as a lever for policy conversations and policy change. Um, so we're thinking about how, how can our voice shape the curriculum? Um, can we also try to understand how can it shape, um, you know, local level policies and, and things like that would be a fascinating area for us to explore. Yeah. And, and Mary talked about in this, in this article about the rejection of policy work in the, U, uh, in the U.S. and how that there haven't been a lot of people who are at the level of someone like uh, Don Penny, who, who publishes a lot on uh, policy but is looking at it from the Australian context. And, and the U.S. hasn't done a, a lot of it, and she kind of breaks this down. And I've, I've had Hans Vandemars on that talked about you know, the rejection of policy work as well, because it, it doesn't get rewarded. It's mostly like longitudinal studies that you have to kind of see what's happening in policy in order to um, kind of like actually say what happened and research it. So it takes a long time. It's, it's slow moving. So an early career researcher is probably not like recommended for them to go into policy work because they're not going to publish those articles right away that gets them tenure. And it's just not like it's time consuming to go in and lobby your local like, you know, state senator or whoever it is to try to get them to enact policies. But arguably, like you said, Michael, like that's where the big change can happen. You know, instead of publishing a research paper that goes into a peer-reviewed journal behind a paywall that maybe gets read by somebody but doesn't necessarily get that impact that that you want, Kevin, thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think that that just you know, that, that what you're talking about right there, uh, I, I think, relates to this larger issue that we see in higher education, 
related to to what off the cuff I'm going to call scholarly significance versus practical significance, and and the way that universities reward those two things. Like you know, for example, Risto, this podcast I, I would argue is very practically significant to a lot of people, and, and I hope that George Mason appreciates that and looks at that favorably. But but I don't think that either of us would say that they look at it on the same level that they would if you got a big federal grant or if you even got, you know, a mid-range grant. Um, it, it's just, it's different. But when you talk about impact and what's really making a difference, oftentimes it's the things that we assign the least scholarly value to. And there's such a contradiction built into that system. Um, you know, so few, like I love writing research papers. It's probably my favorite thing to do um, from a scholarly perspective. I just, I like to think, I like to write, I like to play with theory. But I'd be the first to tell you that, that the work that I've done um, with kids out in schools and communities has been much more impactful by, by any measure, it, it, except for um, the number of publications that come out of that and, you know, like impact factors and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but that's what universities often care about. That's what you get tenure and you get promoted based off of, not on the community impact you have. Yeah. There's a quote. Yeah, I, 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 I'll say this real quick. There's a quote at the very end of saying, and I think this was an Australian context of early career researchers who were coming in. They said that they are better at building their CV than doing the actual peat work. A hundred thousand percent. Yeah. So go ahead, Michael. Yeah. So, yeah. I think uh, I, I agree with this sentiment of, you know, the publications rule of the day in, um, I don't think we, I think we need to start pushing back on that a little bit. Um, you know, we all, we have, first we have some agency in this. I mean, we create the evaluation system at the, at least at the local department level and have a lot of say in what counts and why it counts. And there are frameworks uh, to understand what is scholarly relevant from like a democratic engagement standpoint. And clearly policy work falls within high quality democratic engagement. Um, many of our institutions, I know mine and Kevin, um, have a notation from uh, the Carnegie Foundation as a community engaged institution. It may be the same for George Mason, I'm just not sure. Um, and this has very clear frameworks and standards for what it means to be a scholar in terms of community engagement. And, you know, the most easiest way to get there is to have really good publications because like it's, you can see them, you can count them, it's just easy. And so, if that's the path you want to take, that's wonderful. But there's also scholarly processes. It just, um, it remains our responsibility as a scholar to show that our work is scholarly, rigorous, and relevant, that we can't get around that. And so we have to have ways of showing that what we're doing is meaningful scholarship. And some ways that can be is, is peer review. Um, by having scholars in our field that are willing to put their name on it and say that this is a, a really valid, rigorous scholarly process. I would say that I would use this podcast as a innovative, highly scholarly relevant product um, that should be rewarded as much as a high quality public or a series of high quality publications because you've got hundreds of episodes now. So um, I would push us as a field to say, we should not. We shouldn't be here to just make it anymore. We should try to remake this situation in a way that says you can do this policy work because this is what the field needs. And now let's create an infrastructure 
where these young scholars can develop and grow and also be held accountable, you know, to, to meeting some, some standards um, for scholarship. Other fields have done it, um, and there's literature on how to do this stuff. So, uh, you know, we can, we can get there. You know, I think what would be really interesting to see with our field in particular, and I don't think that all fields are set up this way, but, but I feel like ours is, um, you know, it'd be interesting to, at a single university, to have some faculty who are full-time tenure-track faculty and are rewarded primarily for doing research, like traditional scholarly research, that have other people at that same university to get rewarded for teaching or for service. I think we need it all. I think we need all of those pieces to be good and different people are, are attracted to different parts of the job. I'm, I really enjoy research. That doesn't mean that everybody has to enjoy research to be considered a um, a contributor in the peak community. I would, I would in fact argue that people who work at smaller teaching institutions and teach, you know, four classes a semester, five classes a semester, have a much greater impact on pre-service teachers than I ever will. Uh, and, and that matters and that's real. So I don't understand still why we create these artificial divides in, in, in position certain elements of the faculty role as being more important and more prestigious as others. Because anytime that you do that, you necessarily marginalize something else. Yeah. To put one thing up, you have to push something else down. And I think yeah, that we yeah, talk I'd about... say, Kevin... Go ahead. I'll add briefly to Kevin, I would, I would say with the research, research is, a, is one component of scholarship. And I think our job is to be scholars. And if, you're, if your role is research, that's, that's great. We need that. But scholarship uh, also involves the systematic dissemination of that research, other creative activities um, that can fit that broad definition. And that's where I think we've zeroed in a little bit too much just on the research in this policy discussion, as you know, I think Hans talked about on, a, on an episode, um, is outside of that. And yet we're sitting here saying, gosh, we don't have policies that support our work. Well, you know, we're doing a little bit of this to ourselves here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we we talked about research and teaching and how, you know, can you have a path to tenure or path to full professor by being an excellent teacher at certain R1s? No. Like you have to get X amount of publications at different universities there are different rules. But then we add the third component of service. Like what makes the university system work? Is people volunteering for committees, volunteering to lead uh, departments, and you know we we've seen scholars in a lot of different fields advised, even though they're a really good leader, they're advised not to take a department head position as an associate professor. They're like, don't do it until you get full because you're going to get stuck in that. And we're taking away a really good leader that is liked by others who has a passion to lead and telling them not to do that until they jump through these hurdles and then then they can go back. And I feel like that, you know, if you really want to like like privilege or reward people for doing the work that universities need to do to do this right, you need to have different paths to tenure or different paths to full professor and have that at the same time. Like I know, you know, colleagues of mine that are in teaching like equivalent of a clinical uh, you know program or a clinical position where they're just teaching they don't have any requirement for research in in 20 years they'll go through like 10 different 
contract renewals, whereas a tenure track person goes tenure, full pro- full promotion, or maybe they do like a third year and then through, but they get this like automatic, uh, you know, acceptance for a, a quote unquote lifetime job in six years or five years, whereas you know, like you were talking about, Kevin, like in different in different ways, like you have to go through so much more and they're having a way bigger impact on the pre-service teachers because they're there teaching every single student that goes through the undergraduate program because they just have a heavier teaching load and they they do a wonderful job at it. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me ask you, let me ask a, a, a general question that'll help us kind of zoom out maybe a little bit. Um, generally speaking, based on your own observations and experiences, how would you describe the quality of instruction in higher education? Not the quality of instruction in PEAT, the quality of instruction in higher education. Well, if you look at every single major, I think it's generally speaking. pretty bad, you know, because you don't have to be a teacher to be able to be teaching at a university. You just have to produce so what research. Is, what is it about that? It, it, it becomes a racket in some ways, right? So we we basically advertise that we like at, we advertise that that it's you know you're, you're coming to get this amazing degree from this amazing university um, where really the faculty members who are teaching there are are paid and rewarded primarily for getting grants and doing research. Many of them, and again, we're looking across higher education. This is not just Pete. Many of them have no formal training or preparation whatsoever in college-level instruction. Or their TA teaches the class. Like, I haven't been in this class as an undergraduate or a master's degree student that, like, the professor's TA teaches the whole class, but I've heard of this. I know it happens all the time. Yeah. But I would be I would be livid if I was paying tuition and the person who was the instructor on record doesn't show up for class, you know? It's great experience yeah, for the PhD student. Is, but... um, I think we're, we're starting in some places you might be seeing some changes uh, with undergraduate instruction um, at institutions like mine. We uh, rely heavily on uh, enrollment and retention is a big issue. We're a, uh, quite diverse school. We draw from um, rural populations. Uh, I think the overwhelming majority of our students are first-generation college students. And so uh, the university recognizes there's a, a real need for them to be engaged early on in um, high-quality education experiences in the classroom, but also, you know, service learning and um, campus life because, um, you know, we're losing them. And, and so as a consequence with COVID, we're one of uh, only two or three universities in the, out of the 16 in the uh, state system who have declining enrollment. Um, places like Chapel Hill have been increasing during COVID, which kind of surprises me, but, um, you know, because that, that population is a little bit more vulnerable. And so I've noticed, like, we have a new provost, and she's hyper-focused on undergraduate issues like that. And, um you know, there's a teaching and learning center that does a great deal of kind of continual professional development, like we've talked about here for K-12 teachers. So that might be changing some, and that also might be a, a, a feature of these universities with um, that attract that pop, that type of population who, you know, we just know we need to worry about these students because it's 
the right thing to do, but also like if we don't, we're, um, you know, we're losing our budgets getting cut. We're losing lines, all these things that just hurt our long-term, long-term viability as a unit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground here and I, I know we could probably keep talking for forever on a bunch of different topics that, um, that Mary brought up. But, um, for those of you who want to read the, uh, the full paper it's open access through the shape website um i'll put the link in um to the article and you can uh read it through there we'd love to hear your comments on this um and another kind of side announcement here we're we're coming up on episode 200 and um i'm planning in the first week of november um planning a town hall type discussion so um, if you want more information on that it's something that's going to be open to to you uh, to people who've been on the podcast before, or even if you just want to kind of listen in. Um, so you can check out uh, at the HP podcast on Twitter, and um, I'll put a link to that. So thanks, Kevin and Michael. Appreciate your time. Thank you. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.